Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, it's Matt McLaughlin from Living History here. Before we get started on this week's podcast, some really exciting news for all our UK listeners. Now that the borders between France and Britain have opened up, we've launched a range of tours. We've launched Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours in the UK. So now if you're in the UK, you can travel to France, you can tour those battlefields of the Western Front where men fought and died during the Great War. So we've got great tours, we've got weekends that explore all the battlefields, a special tour for Remembrance Day. There's a whole range of great group and private tours there available now for you to travel on. So they're all escorted by Pete Smith, who you would know from our Battle Walks podcast. He's an absolute expert. He lives on the battlefields of the Somme. And he knows this better than anyone else. He's the perfect person to travel the battlefields with. They're going to be a great range of tours. I'm really excited. So jump on our website, check them out, book them now. It's battlewalks.co.uk and you can book those tours today. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm hello, Gary Bain. Hello, hello. And I'm here once more with the wonder that is Peter Hart. I wonder why. We all wonder why, Pete. That's why you're a wonder. Now today, Pete, we're going to continue with the story of the Battle of the Somme. Not a one-day battle, then. Not a one-day battle. Uh, and uh, uh, this this surrounds the activities beyond the 14th of July, which was the night attack that we covered in an earlier podcast. Yeah, the the night attack was quite a success. It had smashed open in the southern sector the the German second line system. Uh, But it's a bit of a a false dawn, wasn't it? It, it, It's quite cruel in a way. You get your hopes up and then they're smashed back down again. Um, Do you think they really learned the lessons uh, from uh, from the success of the 14th of July? No, I, I mean, there is a, a question whether the, the lessons that, that should have been learnt, such as, you know, the devastating use of massed artillery, for example, in support of an attack on a, on a wide front uh, and using more imaginative infantry tactics, whether they'd actually deliberately so cast it to the cast wind. it to the winds. They replaced it with tactics which I've seen you describe in one of your books, Pete, as uh, the tactics of the lunatic asylum. Yeah, I was uh, not politically correct. (laughs) (laughs) You mean, (laughs) yes, as if they were nutters. Um, So, uh, do you see, if if this is a learning curve, then it's a bloody strange, funny, wobbly, wibbly learning curve. A sad travesty of geometry. Oh, you're so intellectual. Yes, I wonder where I got that from. 
from that bit. I've just seen it written down there. <laughs> now, um, uh, so what the fighting does, it degenerates into the very worst sort of attritional fighting. Um, and you get obscure villages, woods, even trenches that that sort of send misery to the hearts of various parts of of, of England and the, and the rest of the empire. That, that, um uh, I mean, some places that are, I'm thinking of uh, one we're not covering today, but things like Mamet's Wood, there are still awful memories of that now, uh, sort of 100 years well, later. You know, some that we are covering today, things like Delville Wood, that still resonates in, in South Africa even today. Well, let's let's get on with that one then first. So that's the first one. We can't do all of it, can we? Because this is this is a huge battle, and we're covering the the, the high summer months, uh, at back end of uh, July and into August, and even into September. We're covering. So what we've done is just pick three examples, haven't we? And and you've just led us into the first one, um, Delville Wood. We'll put a we'll put some maps up or our map up. Um, so so what are they trying to do in Delville Wood? Well. <laughs> The British are, are, are struggling to capture and hold the uh, the blighted wood and the ruins of the adjoining uh, village, I think, called Longaval. Pete, is that that Longaval, correct yeah, pronunciation? Now, in peacetime, this was a 156-acre wood and, and it had a typically sylvan aspect with Ooh. mingled oaks and birch trees Lovely. interspersed with thickets of hazel and undergrowth. Oh. I, it was cut through with... Uh, what they call rides, well, I don't know what they call it, them in rides in, they call them rides in this country, but basically cut through uh, uh, breaks, uh, uh, like fire breaks between the trees. And um, what yeah, by, state is it in uh, by <laughs> mid-July? Is it still lovely? Yeah, by mid-July, it's, uh, it's ripped to pieces, smashed into tangled heaps by the shells. And, and uh, it was known as the Devil's Wood, uh, as the troops unsurprisingly called it. Well, see, the, the name sort of gives it... It does, and, and it presented a fearsome prospect. Now, uh, on 15th of July, the 9th Division, they'd captured most of Longueville on the 14th of July, the battle we, were, we did in the last, pod, well, the last podcast on the Somme. Uh, now, they're given the task of completing the capture of Delville Wood. And no one really could have guessed how long this was going to take. Um, who, who's ordered to do it? Well, the South African Brigade ordered to capture the wood, and uh, it, it's an interesting phrase, at all costs. Uh, and the attack went in at 0615 on the 15th of July. Yes, it's a strange uh, thing. You, you, it made you ponder. First, they ordered to attack it at all costs, later on to defend it at all costs. Yeah, it's an int- I mean, what does it mean? Does it mean to the last man? And, and in which case, if you're defending it, doesn't that mean it's a failure because you lose it? And, and do the Germans do such things? The Germans did tend to hold their front lines to the last man um, and, uh, and then counterattack. And that's one of the reasons they're casualties are so high because they they have this uh, at all costs later on when they have defense in depth that they're more likely to pull back the Uh, french seem to have the most sensible approach to it yeah retreat if you're in trouble uh reorganize uh, bring up your reserves and then counterattack. yeah Um, yeah. now i'm going to be private hugh mallet of the uh hugh mallet and your attack goes in at uh, 06.15 on the 15th of July. And your Hugh Mallet, as you said, 2nd Battalion, South African Regiment. What's going to happen? We arrived at the edge of the wood at about dawn. Everybody on tenterhooks. And just as the last man got in, old Fritz opened fire with big and little guns. Rifle and machine gun fire. What a time we had. 
Our men were being rolled over like nine pins. But on went the boys, and by 8.30 we had accomplished our task. We gave old Fritz the time of his life. I took a slow and steady aim and made every shot tell. My only regret was that I did not get my bayonet into him. Later, there was a lull, and it was during this lull that I was hit. I was on guard at the time, and it was my duty to keep a sharp lookout over the parapet. I'd only been on a few minutes when old Fritz sent a huge shell right in front of our trench. It blew away a portion of the trench and knocked a tree over on top of us. One of the splinters of the shell landed me one on the right cheek, which of course put me out for a few moments. It made a nasty hole. I did not wish to leave, but I was told to take another wounded man into safety. That's uh, pretty good. Uh, so they managed to capture all but the northwest sort of corner of the wood. Uh, but then what would the Germans do? Well, we've talked about this time and time again, and I just made reference it. What do the Germans do? What do the Germans do, Gary? Well, they're going to counterattack, Pete. And and not only do they counterattack, but they're increasing in, in severity. And, uh, and, and it's from all around this now developing salient. And almost every available man was needed to repel them over the next four days. So the South Africans try and dig trenches around the perimeter. Uh, but uh, what, what problem? Well, well, you're a practical man. I'm not. Uh, what problems can you picture if, if you're trying to dig in around the edges of a wood? Well, we mentioned what state the wood was in earlier. So it's no small task with ground that's filled with twisted roots and the mangled trees. The South Africans, were they're ordered to hold their ground, as you mentioned, at, at all, all costs. costs. <laughs> so uh, inspirational orders are, are, are undoubtedly easier to give out than to follow. Now, yes. the German shells, they're raking across the wood and uh, the ceaseless roar gradually increases in volume as more and more guns were brought up uh, to the line. Now, you're going to be Private Frank Marillia of the 2nd Battalion South African Regiment, which is uh, Natal and Free State. Absolute hell turned inside out. I never expected to get out whole. Shells dropping everywhere. We get orders to return in the, the afternoon. Late, I think. In fact, I'm almost sure that our lives were saved when a very brave officer, Captain Hoptroff, made his way to our position. He wasted no time. Get out, he said, and was almost immediately hit by a bullet and killed outright. It is strange how, in the most urgent and tragic circumstances, one notices things of minor importance. For as Captain Hoptroff dropped, my eye caught sight of his very beautiful gold wristlet watch, and I have never ceased to regret that I did not take it off and send it to his family. I'm sure that they would have appreciated it. Now, of course, uh, you and your uh, comrades would probably have had a different reason for having their eye on the wristwatch. Well, and, and, and I have no doubt that that happened on occasion. That's a, a very noble sentiment that uh, Frank Marillia has. He's a good lad. Now, uh, in, uh, just to give an idea of the scale, um, the, the, in 18, on 18th of July, during these days while the South Africans are defending, defending the wood, it's been calculated around 20,000 shells fall on a single square mile of the devil's wood. Uh, and and uh, uh, at a crescendo, there's, there's seven per second crashing down. Now, can you imagine that? I, I mean, I find it difficult to imagine. Um, no, I think it's almost impossible to imagine that. So what, what, what do you think it's like in the wood? 
Well, I mean, all around the, the, the perimeter, the, the young, and they are young, they South are, yeah. African officers, are recognising the, 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 the truth that human courage alone can't withstand huge quantities of high explosive and shrapnel. Um, the South Africans, they've given all they could. And uh, despite their orders to stick it out at all costs, several reluctantly begin to fall back through the wood. Yeah. Uh, now, orders aren't. There's no point giving orders if you don't give the resources to support those orders. And, no. And defend at all costs. They needed more men, didn't they? And in addition, sniping was also a terrible threat. And once more, you're going to be Private Frank Marillia. We set up our Lewis gun with tragic results. In, in succession, ten of my mates were killed, and and it looked as as if my own turn was next. Whilst at the gun, one bullet grazed the side of my face near the eye. Another hit the stock, but the bullets were not coming from the direction our gun was facing. After our tenth comrade had been killed, one of our chaps thought he saw a slight movement in a tree some distance to our rear. We gave the tree a burst and out dropped a German sniper. A brave man. He must have crept into the wood in the blackness of the previous night and set himself up, well hidden in the branches. I'm sure he would have known that his chances of survival were very slight. I was indeed lucky not to be his next victim. He certainly was. Wow. Now, what situation... What do you think... How do you think the lads are feeling, the South Africans in that wood? Right, well, they're going to be totally knackered. They're going to be exhausted. They're, they're probably running out of food and water. Because the shell fire would disrupt the ration system, the, the carrying party. Absolutely. And they're probably going to be increasingly shell-shocked. Are they in deep trenches, do you think, by no, this time? No, they're, they're clinging on to what uh, would be makeshift shallow trenches. And, and as each hour passes, there are fewer men left standing to face the next German counter-attack. Now, Captain Medlicott and his men, they're finally overrun uh, by, by the Germans at dawn on the 19th of July. And you're going to be Captain RFC Medlicott uh, of the 3rd Battalion South African Regiment, Transvaal and Rhodesia. Exhausted machine gun ammunition, drove off tack from the wood, but had to chuck it soon after 8am. Handed back, sorry to say, all German prisoners captured during the day. I got not a wink of sleep for four nights. Could not sleep in the night of the 18th. Got Lieutenants Gard and Thomas in a safe place, both wounded, with German prisoners. I was satisfied at our marksmanship. So many dead Germans round us in the wood. I was too busy waiting for the moment to attack, which was maturing during the day. The enemy shell fire was chief, chiefly 5.9 inch. Too intense to think of retiring. The Germans were rattled with our gunfire. Our men, who at that time, owing to want of water and sleep, were cold and stiff, were calm and had a don't-care-a-damn appearance. Now, by the end, Colonel Thackeray and the scattered remnants of the 3rd South African uh, uh, Third Battalion, South African Regiment. They're just clinging onto their fingertips, just to a little tiny corner of the wood, um, and they're promised time and time again. They're promised eh, more assistance is on the way. Does it come? No, no, nothing came at all. On the nineteenth of July, when the remnants of the South African Brigade finally emerged from what remained of the wood, there were only seven hundred and eighty of the 3,153 men present to answer the roll call. Now, they're all dead. I mean, most, I mean a good, most of them would be wounded of those casualties, but 
a lot of them are dead, uh, far too many. And uh, the, Af the South Africans would never forget that would. So, so what should we look at next? What do you fancy? Well, next, let's have a look at the attacks of as the first. As if it's not written down in front of us on our notes. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll look at the attacks by the 1st and 2nd Anzac Division, uh, which is the attacks on Pozier and the Albert the Palm Road. Yeah, it's in the it's it's on that straight. Is it a Roman road? It looks like a I Roman. I think it is road. Roman road. Um, it, and it goes from well, what would you say it goes from Albert to Bapalm? Uh, probably. <laughs> I'd say so. Sorry, I just got distracted by life. <laughs> um, uh, now this is Pozier's very strongly defended, isn't it? It's part of the original second line defence system, not line defence system. We keep emphasising this to give you an idea of how serious it all is. Uh, yeah, it was the original German second line, wasn't it? Second line system, yeah. yeah. It, it, and it's up on Pozier's Ridge. Um, important tactically, would you say? Yeah, it's very important tactically, uh, as, as it's captured not only, uh, to some extent, destabilises the rest of the German second line system in that sector, but it also begins to unravel the German stranglehold on the fortress of the Thiepval Spur. Now that's uh, that's next to well the Schwaben Redoubt. That's the uh, that that's the uh, what's that German expression that I can't pronounce? The Spearport. Yeah, it's yeah. The, now it's, that it's, still bars the way to any advance in the northern sector on the Somme battlefront. And that's what uh, Joffre had said: we, they should just get on with and capture, because that is the key. If you capture that, then the Germans are going to have to fall back. Now, uh, so so uh, who's in charge of the Anzac divisions ultimately? Well, well. Ultimately, General Sir Hubert Goff is commanding what was then the Reserve Army and later known as the Fifth Army. And who goes first? Well, he decides to, to throw the newly arrived 1st Anzac Division into the fray. Oh, I wonder where they've arrived from, Pete. Nearly Billy Land. Uh, now, they'd attack at um, uh, 0030 on the 23rd of July. I never know how to say that. No, you laughed at me when yes. I had trouble with it the other day. How how good it is to see you. So, half an hour past midnight. <laughs> half an hour past midnight on the 23rd of July, striking across from the southeast at the junction of the Reserve Army and 4th Army, rather than straight up the Albert Pozier so Road. So coming at it slightly diagonally. Yeah. Now, uh, the, the, you, you mentioned it, the 1st Australian Division, um, or is it Anzac? I think it's... Uh, I notice I keep changing. Anyway, um, they're, they're, they're fresh from, from Gallipoli. Uh, <laughs> they're wasted endeavours, because I've never been... I've been unwavering, in my opinion, that was a waste of resources. But did uh, um, did do you think they had any idea what they were going to face on the Western Front? No, I mean we have mentioned before that you know the the uh, what would be a huge barrage in Gallipoli was was a minor skirmish on the Western Front. So for the first time, they're they're being exposed to the reality of warfare on the Western Front. Just the sheer power of the guns, the number of the guns, the amount of ammunition available. They had hardly any ammunition at Gallipoli, so the the they're supporting British artillery. That's Pounding to buggery, the uh, ruins of Pozzi. Pounding to buggery. It's a technical expression used in the army. From the 19th of July. Uh, and and it, that goes on for the four days before the attack at uh, half past midnight. <laughs> <laughs> on 23rd of July. Uh, what do they... Now, the, Austra the, the Australians... Um, uh, they uh, there's a, there's a creeping barrage and uh, t tell me uh, what how do the, the the Australians show a a refreshing original well not originality particularly but uh, they're brave about how they do it aren't they yeah about midnight the Australians move up 
out to their jumping off tapes and many of them creep out into no man's land so as to get as close as possible to the barrage line when it fell. Now, in doing so, they're accepting the risk of casualties from shells that drop even as, as much as a few yards short. So at 12.28, the, there's the final mass barrage and uh, the Australians must have been amazed. And uh, you're going to be Sergeant Harry Preston of the 9th Australian ba Battalion. Down came our barrage onto the enemy line and Pozier village, the Germans replying with artillery and machine gun fire. As we lay out among the poppies in no man's land, we could see the bullets cutting off the poppies almost against our heads. The flashes of the guns, the bursting of the shells and the very lights made the night light day. And as I lay as flat to the ground as possible, I was expected to stop one at any time, jamming my tin hat down on my tin helmet down on my head. I brought the body of my rifle across my face to stop anything that might happen to drop low. In the tumult, it was impossible to hear orders. My ears were ringing with the cracking of bullets. A man alongside me was crying like a baby, and although I tried to reassure him, he kept on saying that we would never get out of it. Suddenly, I saw men scrambling to their feet. Taking this to be the signal for the charge, I jumped up and dashed across. Now, I find that an excellent quote. It really gives the feeling. Um, now... One thing that would happen is that they, they then came under, besides the artillery, German artillery, heavy machine gun fire. Now, what's the difference between being under machine gun fire at, uh, on the Somme and at Gallipoli? What, 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 can, you've been to Anzac, uh, Anzac Cove. What, why would a machine gun be more of a threat? at? Uh... Well, because you're in relatively open fields uh, on the Somme battlefield. We, we described in the earlier uh, podcasts the... Uh, the way you have these uh, sweeping hills and valleys of the Somme, but it but it's wide open. That means you can get enfilade fire, um, and a that long is way. and a long way, and that is murderous and crisscrossing. Yeah, absolutely. And That's what's, why. What, what's different about Anzac? Surely could they not do that there? No, because it's it's very steep hills, it's cliffs. Uh, the land is very rugged. Rugged. They're not wide open spaces at all. You don't have the field of fire. It's short range deadliness, but it is deadly. But it, it's different, isn't it? Now, uh, so zero hour came. Cut um, out if any. People always blow the whistles. I'm not sure many people would heard. And the men moved forward as best they can. Uh, the bombardment was pretty effective, and they forced their way into Pozier's trench. That that bars the way into the to the village of Pozier's. And again, you're going to be Sergeant. Harry Preston. At the point where I entered, there was a German doctor who afterwards did good work among the wounded. Private Jack Rogers, who reached a trench with me, bayoneted two Germans, and after a sharp fight, the trench was cleared and we immediately set to work to improve our position. Captain S.N. Lawrence was in charge of this work. The trench was in good order, with dugouts let into the sides. The dead bodies, which had to be thrown out, were used in building up the parapet. Something they got used to doing at Gallipoli. That's a, a real feature of Gallipoli fighting, isn't it? Now, it, 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 the fighting's particularly vicious. It, it really is horrible. Again, you're Sergeant Harry Preston. I was with a party that was ordered to the right in an endeavour to force a way into the stronghold. This, however, proved difficult, as it was strongly held by the enemy, whose egg bombs could be thrown farther than our mills. After a sharp fight, our bomb supply ran out and we were forced to barricade the trench and rely on rifle and bayonet until more grenades arrived. 
Men were spread out along the trench and the bombs were passed from man to man. The Germans at first tricked us by putting helmets and caps on their rifles and walking along with them held above the parapet. When our men put their heads up and attempted to shoot them, they were shot by other Germans further along the trench. <laughs> right. Uh, but it did not take us very long to wake up to this ruse, and very soon we were playing the same game. While all this was going on, and we were tunnelling under a road into the strong post, and by this means we succeeded in getting into the enemy trench. This movement startled the Germans, who dashed out and across the ridge towards Pozier village, making an excellent target for our rifles and machine guns. In the meantime, other Australians had entered Pozier and driven out its garrison who were making their way to the stronghold. So out over the top we went and chased the confused and panic-stricken enemy over the ridge in the direction of the old windmill. A good many were overtaken and shot or bayoneted. Now that windmill's still there. It's next to an absolutely ludicrous, uh, I don't know what it's pets at war or bunny rabbits at war uh, sort of thing that's been placed next to it. But the windmill is a great site to visit and uh, I always like to go there. And uh, I still remember when I took a, a group of... Uh, uh, there for uh, uh, it was Matt, Matt I think Matt McLaughlin I took a, a group <laughs> and I was uh, saying and over there is Mukay Farm pointing off across the open fields and then I noticed Chris Baker was with a, a lone Australian and Chris just went just gestured with his hand and just moved me round to where I was pointing to the right place other than the 30 degrees out I was because I'm not a SOM expert as you know you know no more about the SOM than well, I do. Well, and it's fair to say that the windmill isn't there. The ruins of the, the windmill. Ru oh, no, it's just there. a mound, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just a mound. And uh, and the Mukay farm that's there is the rebuilt Mukay farm. Yeah, and it's invisible, or, yeah. or it's just over there. But I, I, had, uh, I had the direction wrong. And it always it's not good. like you. <laughs> There's lots of pictures of me pointing on battlefields with with Bulent, the Turkish guy, pointing in completely the different well, so where are we? I've forgotten where we well, are. Well, what now. it means is the capture of most of the village means that the, the consolidation was the priority as they awaited the inevitable violent German reaction. Now, once they realised the situation, the German artillery, it, it wasn't idle, but it, it took it's a... blasting them, isn't it? It took a steady toll of the Australians. It isolated them. What, what, what do you mean? What's it... What, tell me how... So it's isolating. What does the isolation mean? Well, they're trying to cut them off from reinforcement and basic supplies. Food, you, you mentioned ammunition, bombs. Yeah. Now, this tactic was obvious, um, and it was expected, but almost impossible to counter without a concerted prior attempt to knock out the German batteries. And you're going to be Captain J.R.O. Harris. Three uh, initials. Yeah, uh, must, must all have a meaning, Pete. Um, of the 3rd Australian Battalion. As fast as one portion of the trench was cleared, another was blown in. There were no dugouts in which men on post could take shelter, and the only thing to do was grin and bear it. The men who were not wounded were kept busy digging out the men who were buried alive by the explosions caving in the trench sides. I had occasion to bless my tin hat, for in our portion of the trench the parapet was composed of, of, of the debris of a ruined house and a shell pushed over a barrow load of bricks onto my head with no other ill effect but some bruises on the shoulders. Uh, you've got a bruise on your shoulder today, haven't you? Well, yeah. could you just tell them what happened to you, Gary? Because I found it quite interesting. In no, Pete. It, it, Gary, it, Gary, come on. No, Pete. What happened to you? No, you Pete. fell over in the shower, didn't you? Old man's trouble. 
Something like that, Peter. Now, there's, oh, there's no. nothing for the survivors to do but endure as best they can. And you're going to be, once more, you're going to be Private Frank Brent of the second Australian Battalion. I think this is the first time I've been him, actually, Gary. It is the first time you've been him, but I'm just trying to move on from the unfortunate <laughs> shower incident. The affair de shower. Yeah. Now, Private Frank Brent, what does he say, Pete? Without doubt, Posias was the heaviest bloodiest, rottenest stunt that ever the Australians were caught up in. The carnage is just indescribable. As we were making our attack after the 3rd Brigade had gone through, we were literally walking over the dead bodies of our cobbers that had been slain by this barrage. I can't imagine anything more concentrated than the artillery barrage of the Germans at that particular stunt. He was even shelling our front line with great coal boxes. His artillery was registered right smack on it. The bay on our left went in, two or three chaps were killed, the bay on our right went in. I said to this chap, it's our turn next. He seems to be from Lancashire. <laughs> I hadn't said it before we were buried. I was quite unconscious, buried in what had been the German frontline trench. I was picked up and sent back to the battalion first aid post. I was given a bottle of sal volatile, is that how you pronounce it? Sal, sal volatile, uh, or something. Oh, I wish it had been rum. <laughs> I was sat in the corner of this aid post for a little while, but then the wounded just streamed in, and the chap in charge of the post said, Ah, oh, well, you've had enough rest, you'd better get back again. And I went back. During the whole of that period, I can't remember anything more nerve-wracking than the continuous shelling day and night. This is what we mean. They'd never had this in Gallipoli. Nothing, even an inkling of it. <sighs> and what about... What do you do under shell fire? I mean, what would you do? Well, you're in your trench, the shell fire. What would you do? Well, you try and move out of the, the way. And, and Which it, way, Gary? Well, it, it wouldn't matter whether they move left or right. They couldn't second guess the random uh, machinations of high technology. Machinations? Machinations. And, uh, you mean if the bloke twiddles his little knob? If he twiddles his little knob and, and the degrees are set, then blind fate guides the shell to their final resting place. Which, and that could be where you've just moved to. Or, or, or it could be that you've moved out of the way Absolutely. of it. Absolutely. So it's nerve-wracking. And that must be one of the causes, because extreme stress is one of the causes of shell, shell shock, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, uh, you know, this is going on and on and on. And at 8.30 on the 25th of July... The long-expected major counterattack. Oh, last, German counterattack! Yeah, at last materialises from the direction of the windmill, further along Pozier Ridge, and this once more is Sergeant Harry Preston of the Ninth Australian you like Battalion. Him, don't you? I do. As I happened to be on the right flank, I found myself right in the thick of it. The enemy came over the ridge like swarms of ants, rushing from shell hole to shell hole. Our men full of fight and confidence, lined the parapet and emptied magazine after magazine into them. Some of the boys, anxious to get a shot at the Germans, pulled one another down from the fire step in the midst of the fight. Under this fire and that of our machine guns and the artillery, which tore great gaps in the advancing lines, the enemy attack withered. The survivors were later seen retiring beyond the ridge, which was barraged by our artillery. So this is, this is why the German. When people say that, oh, it's ridiculous, the, the British, uh, the Allies must have suffered terribly more than the Germans. The Germans, uh, uh, the, the, some, some people have worked out the Germans attack as much as we do. Uh, it, 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 this is too 
huge armies smashing hell out of each other. And they're caught in the open in that case because, you know, they are attacking uh, against a defended position. The artillery are going to rip them to pieces. Now, the Australian lines hold against this attack uh, and they're eventually relieved by uh, the 2nd Australian Division. Um, but by then they'd lost over 5,000 casualties, which must have been... A, a th- and and, and the, the Australians too suffered dreadfully on Pozzier's Ridge. Goff... Um, well, he's undeterred. He, he was always a vigorous commander. Not one of our favourites, is he? Uh, but he, he's determined enough, and he, he's determined to, to drive through Pozzias as soon as possible. And so, uh, so who does he send up? Well, partly uh, in, in consequence, the second Australian division was um, inveigled into launching an attack without adequate preparation. Oh, that's bad. It's always bad. No, no chance to, to, to find out where they're going. So, so what time... What time? <laughs> I wonder why you're asking me to say. So at um, 0015 on the 29th of July, so quarter past midnight, the 7th Australian Brigade attacked the OG1 and OG2 lines. Which we, I think we discovered before was is our name, Old German 1 and Old German 2. I said that was an original of the Germans to call it that. But of course it's us that's calling it Yeah, we're calling it. I was it. thinking, when I listened to that podcast, I thought, you're an idiot, Pete. <laughs> uh, and then towards the Pozier's windmill that lay beyond them. So a stretcher bearer is watching the doomed advance of the the proud Anzacs of the 28th Battalion and you're going to be Private Tom Young of the 27th Australian Battalion. They marched across no man's land as if they were on the parade ground with their own shells screaming in droves over their heads and the German shells blowing them to bits. The men dropped like flies. The German wire remained intact and they could go neither forward nor back. They tore at the barbed wire with their hands, searching for openings under one of the most intense machine gun barrages Australians have ever faced. So they're, they're just trapped in front. This is the old hanging on the old barbed wire in front of thick German barbed wire. Uh, so what do the survivors do? Well, they've got little or no choice and, and most of them take shelter in shell holes. That's the only blessing there. The, 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 the ground is starting to be cratered. And you're going to be Corporal Percy Blythe of the 28th Australian Battalion. We left a long line of the best and bravest boys that Australia ever produced lying along that wire. Some fell across it with the wires in their hands. Others died with the wire cutters still on the wire. But they were glorious lads, every one of them. I got into a shell hole right under his wire and could go no further forward. So I sent my supply of bombs in the direction of his machine gun right in front of me. I cannot vouch for the result. But this time, everything was in a state of chaos, and I took the risk of going from shell hole to shell hole, trying to get the boys together for another try. The word came up for us to withdraw to our original front line. They all did this, but I stayed and did my best for several wounded fellows. Now, they made a few trivial gains, uh, but most of the 7th Brigade, they, they, they just end up back in their jumping-off trenches. The casualties were sobering. Uh, how many did the 28th Battalion that we've just been talking about, how many did they lose? They lost about 467 men. That, so that, that that's terrible. Now, uh, poor, they make two attacks in all, and then the battered 2nd Australian Division finally pulled back on the 6th of August, uh, by which time how many casualties? Uh, well, by that time, they'd suffered about 6,800 casualties over the two attacks. They finally got the crest of Pozier's Ridge. They, they'd secured uh, a, a tactically valuable vista. Uh, it stretches over the Pozier's Ridge, um, and... Uh, 
towards Corselet, Martin Puis, towards Bapome along the road. Uh, now, um, they're, they're pulled back and the fourth Australian division comes in. Uh, does it, is that the end of the fight for the, for the Australians? No, uh, we're going to leave them there, but the fight actually goes on, Pete. Yeah, the, the reserve army, um, the fifth army, would batter its way forward on the Possiers Ridge, edging towards Mouquet Farm. That's the very thing I was talking about. Um, how would you describe the process for the Australians on that ridge? Well, two steps forward and one step back, it, it might well have exaggerated the speed of the You advance. mean it wasn't that quick? It wasn't that quick. The fighting was so hotly contested. This is attrition, isn't it? Yeah. Now, it's it's evident it's descended into attritional battle of the worst kind. The constant barrages of the British guns were gradually grinding away at the bedrock of the German army. Yes, because this is what we forget. The Germans, not only are they making their own counterattacks, but they are exposed time and time again to incredible barrages by British guns. Um, feeling their way all round the German lines, constantly causing a trickle of casualties. And in a big barrage, they'd, they'd cause a lot of ca casualties, wouldn't they? Um, but there's something wrong uh, with the British attacks. What, what, what would you describe? Uh, what, I, I'm, I, I, I'm very, I, I'm not impressed by British generalship during this phase. Uh, no, it's, 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 it's possibly incompetent and it's, and it's often uncoordinated tactics uh, mean that when they went into the attack, they were losing men whole scale. Uh, to achieve practically nothing. So both sides are getting a complete hammering. Both sides are losing cas terrible casualties and no end in sight, really. Um, um, so, um, well, while the Australians are being so uh, brutally introduced to the horrors of the Western Front in July and August, the Fourth Army Front had once more embarked on a difficult period of trying to seize a string of local objectives that would serve to ease and prepare the ground ready for the next big assault on the integrity of the whole German line, which was going to be made on the 15th of September. And, uh, That's the Battle of Flairs Corselet. It is the Battle of Flairs Corselet. Now, th this reminds me of the period before the 14th of July. Lot, and we discussed that. Lots of little battalion or smaller attacks that, 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 that are on a narrow front. They're not properly supported by a proper barrage. Um, 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 well, preparation's know. a double-edged sword, isn't it? it, it it's, um, it? It's got pros and cons. You've, you've got time to prepare for an assault, but that means there's time for the Germans to repair and prepare their own defences. Time to bring up fresh divisions and more gun batteries to, to, to duel with the British artillery for the control of the battlefield. Yet, if you attack without proper preparation, Pete, it simply guarantees defeat. It does. You're going to get properly smash and that happened time and time again it is not a great period of british generalship uh, this isn't directly related by the way to the very top this is generalship throughout uh, both golf and uh, uh rollinson lose control of the bat they they fail to exert grip and in the background Haig's actually slamming into rollinson telling them to get a grip so you uh, mean the general generalship <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, so what's the next big battle, Pete? Well, we're, 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 we're flitting across the battle. I, I want people to realise that these are just three highlights we've picked, or, or lowlights, to be absolutely honest. Uh, the next one is the attack on the 9th of September, which was to be made by the 16th, that's the Irish division, uh, on the benighted village of Ginchy. 
Um, now, uh, there's a character, there's a couple of, well, you're going to be a, a real character in this. Um, uh, Lieutenant Tom Kettle. Uh, who's Lieutenant? Tell me a bit about yourself, Gary. Well, he, he was a prominent Irish nationalist MP. He was born in Dublin in 1880. He was a leading intellectual and was elected the first president of the Young Ireland branch of the United Irish League. And uh, he later became editor of the Nationalist newspaper. Now, in 1906, his burgeoning political career culminated in his victory in the East Tyrone seat for the House of Commons. Now, his life changes when he was in Belgium on a mission to purchase rifles for the Republican volunteers in 1914. No, that's highly illegal, Pete. So, basically, this man is uh, what we call, not IRA, but but he is a Republican, uh, uh, and by nature, uh, he's on the revolutionary side. Is yeah, purchasing he, rifles. He was, but but caught up in the outbreak of war, he's actually soon repulsed by witnessing the brutality of the German army. Oh, he's in Belgium. He's in Belgium, and he firmly identified with the invaded Belgian, whose position he compared to Ireland. And in the end, despite his republicanism, he enlists in the British army. So this is a, a case of a, a, an Irish nationalist who considers that the German army, the Germans posed the bigger threat. So, British bad, Germans worse. Yeah. Now, <laughs> during his service, he, he gains a kind of hope for the future of Ireland from the, the shared experience of uh, Protestants and Catholics within the 16th and 36th Ulster Divisions. Now, 16th is essentially Catholic and 36th, oh, Ulster hmm. Division. So they're the Red Haddon gang. <laughs> Yes. Well, no, they've got a red hand yes. on that divisional side. I wasn't a bit... <laughs> sorry. No, I just wondered where you were going with that. No. Uh, yeah, well, learned... so is it fair to say that Protestant Catholics don't always get on? Yeah, it is fair to say. And, and you know, it's not overestimating to say that, you know, Tom Kettles held his beliefs firmly as a Republican. Now, I'm going to be Lieutenant Tom Kettle of the 9th Royal Dublin Fusiliers, and he says this. Had I lived, I had meant to call my next book on the relations of Ireland and England The Two Fools, A Tragedy of Errors. It has needed all the folly of England and all the folly of Ireland to produce a situation in which our unhappy country is now involved. I have mixed much with Englishmen and with Protestant Ulstermen, and I know that there is no real or abiding reason for the gulfs saltier than the sea that now dismember the natural alliance of both of them with us Irish nationalists. It needs only a fiat lux of, I a, don't know what that means, of uh, a kind very easily compassed. Do you know what he means by that? No, but it's interesting that he uses the words of a kind very easily compassed, which suggests a direction or pointing to, to replace yeah. the unnatural with the natural. In the name and by the seal of the blood given in the last two years, I ask for colonial home rule for Ireland, a thing essential in itself and essential as a prologue to the reconstruction of the empire. Ulster will agree. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Ulster will agree. And I ask for the immediate withdrawal of martial law in Ireland and an amnesty for all Sinn Féin prisoners. 
If this war has taught us anything, it is that great things can be done only in a great way. Now that that so he sees a, a hope for the future in in the way that the two the two sides in the island dispute, or the three sides, because there are three sides at least, have co- sort of come together and can mix and have a common project. Uh, he's an intellectual, isn't he? He's a man of letters. Uh, uh, how do you think he gets on well? How does he think he gets on with the, the lads? Does he get on well with them? Sorry, I can't speak. Yeah, I think um, he, he sees them as having good spirits and, and enduring, you know, the hardships that, that they face. And and I think, um, you know, he genuinely, genuinely feels the, 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 uh, a real respect and love for his men. And I think this shows in the next quote you've got from, from Tom Kettle. The bombardment, destruction and bloodshed are beyond all imagination. Nor did I ever think the valour of simple men could be quite so beautiful as that of my Dublin Fusiliers. I have had two chances of leaving them, one on sick leave and one to take a staff job. I have chosen to stay with my comrades. I am calm and happy, but desperately anxious to live. This is quite sad, isn't it? Uh, uh, he, he just I remember looking it up. He just had a, a baby daughter born a couple of days before. Uh, it, she's called Betty. I looked her up. In fact, I looked up when she died for when I was writing my songbook in 2005, five, six. Uh, and uh, he, he, he never saw her because she was born. He was away. Um, what happens to Kettle? Well, he's, he's hit very early in the attack um, and, uh, and it is witnessed, in fact. And you're going to be Second Lieutenant Emmett Dalton of the 9th Royal Dublin Fusiliers. I was with Tom when we advanced to the position that night and the stench of the dead that covered our road was so awful that we both used some foot powder on our faces. When we reached our objective, we dug ourselves in and then at 5pm on the 9th, we attacked Ginchy. I was just behind Tom when we went over the top. He was in a bent position and a bullet got over a steel waistcoat that he wore and entered his heart. Well, he only lasted about one minute and he had had my crucifix in his hands. He also said, this is the seventh anniversary of my wedding. I forgot whether seventh or eighth. I love the, the last touch of the, the memory there. But uh, that, that I, I remember I found this all very touching. It's just one of many. But he, he is seen as that bullet. It doesn't just kill Tom Kettle, does it? Because he did have his hopes for a, recon- a peaceful solution to the Irish problem. Um, do you think he was realistic about his hopes? We'll never know. We we will never know. Um, that bullet took away any possibility. It certainly did. Um, he's, uh, his body was never recovered and he's, uh, he's on the Tietval Memorial. I think I might see if I can see that next time I'm there. Um, uh, right, uh, so uh, so let, let's carry on. So what happens to these poor Irish lads attacking? Uh, you're going to be Second Lieutenant, sec- Second Lieutenant Arthur Young of the 7th Royal Irish Fusiliers. Our shells bursting in the village of Ginchy made it belch forth smoke like a volcano. We couldn't run. We advanced at a steady walking pace, stumbling here and there, but going ever onward and upward. A shell landed in the midst of a bunch of men about 70 yards away on my right. I have a most vivid recollection of seeing a tremendous burst of clay and earth go shooting up into the air. Yes, and even parts of human bodies. And that, when the smoke cleared away, there was nothing left. 
Now they went on against what's officially described, i.e. the official history, I presume I mean by that, uh, as the as slight opposition. Uh, they overrun the German front line and burst uh, through 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 the Ginchy. Much left of Ginchy, do you think, by this time? No, uh, it, it's uh, it's it's rubble and powder, to be frank. Yeah, um, br- br- uh, p- pinky d- brick dust. They often yeah. describe these things as. Uh, now, uh, um, so uh, so so, how are they going to consolidate? Well, they do eventually manage to con- consolidate. Now, alongside them were the first six Connaught Rangers, who were commanded by Colonel Roland Fielding, uh, who had only just taken over command of the battalion. Uh, which had already suffered some really severe casualties. Now, you're going to be Lieutenant Colonel Roland Fielding of the first six Connaught Rangers. I always think he's a chap who can't spell his own name every time I see it, I think. And he wrote a wonderful book. Is it Letters to to a Wife? Uh, It's a cracking book. And this is him. The trench in front of us, hidden and believed innocuous, which had in consequence been more or less ignored in the preliminary artillery programme, had, perhaps for this very reason, developed as the enemy's main resistance. This, in fact, being believed to be the easiest section of the attack, had been allotted to the tired and battered 47th Brigade. Such are the surprises of war. Supplemented by machine gun nests in shell holes, the trench was found by the few who reached close enough to see into it to be a veritable hornet's nest. Moreover, it had escaped our bombardment altogether, or nearly so. Now, this is, you're going to be now, uh, I found, this is, I loved when I interviewed a chap called uh, Second Lieutenant Francis Jourdain. He never used the word, he, he was always just his initials. Uh, he's also first six Connaught, Connaught Rangers, and uh, I remember interviewing him. Some well, I still remember the walk to his house from the train station, and he died uh, during the interview. Not not while I was there, but before it was finished. But we finished the First World War part. He was a very bright lad, very bright, and he was a very bright ninety odd year old when I saw him. Now you're going to be him, and uh, this is where we get a, a wonderful connection between him and Fielding, whose book a lot of us. Uh, First World War enthusiasts, well, enthusiasts are people interested in, have got that book. So go, go, Gary, be Second Lieutenant Francis. When the battle started, it was all very horrifying. Shells shooting over the trench, knocking the sand of the parapet. The troops went forward and they very soon came back. They were really knocked to bits by the Germans. I did not take part in the actual movement because it wasn't my business to do so. I was the signal officer and I was in the front line trench looking after whatever signal communications there were, D3 telephone and lines which kept on being broken. The only useful communication was back to brigade. I had one or two NCOs and soldiers with me trying to keep a line going down the communications trench. One single wire on which everything depended. That kept on being bombarded and the thing got cut and several brave men kept on mending it. The whole thing developed into some glorious muddle and there wasn't anything very coherent sent back. In the middle of the battle, the adjutant decided to go sick with trench fever. He retired from the war in fact and was never seen again, which was not a very good thing for an adjutant to do in the middle of a battle. Fielding, who took a certain liking to me, thought I was reasonably intelligent and made me the adjutant on the spot. I was militarily speaking of no height and only 18. The point was I was there. The thing finished as a shambles. Now, and, and, and he's mentioned in the book, uh, his efforts are very much appreciated. He is a very bright lad. Um, 
Uh, uh, Fielding says uh, Jordan had uh, wisdom far beyond his years and found uh, he, he did remarkably well under pressure. He says again, Fielding says, the boy Jordan is still acting adjutant and he's doing marvellously well in, in spite of his extreme youth. And uh, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And later on, he, he becomes a staff officer. And we've actually mentioned him in quotes on the uh, on 1918, where he ends up as a staff officer, a divisional staff officer. And one memorable day, forgot to send the food rations forward. But the men under him never complained, Gary. No, no, well, they wouldn't. <laughs> now, in some ways, the study of August and early September is the least rewarding and most utterly depressing chapter in the whole tragic epic of the Somme Offensive. The Brits... Why? Well, the Brit British had uh, had the troops, they had the guns, the ammunition and even the weather. The perpetual enemy of British generals... You mean it always snows or rains when it... <laughs> was, was reasonably favourable, yeah. Now, yet the period went by unredeemed by anything that could be considered a success just just thousand upon thousands more casualties now i'm not sure if i agree with myself in one sense I, I i am arguing with myself but i would point out that we are killing a lot of germans which is i suppose the point but it could have been done better couldn't it i, I think this is the point that the, the the lessons of the 14th of July, massed bombardments, short massed hurricane bombardments, uh, surprise attacks, flexible infantry tactics. These have been ignored, haven't they? By by by, uh, and is it anyone's fault? It it it's so distracting. It's difficult to keep a grip, and that's what Rawlinson fails to do. And Goff, they fail to keep a grip. No, there was... And Haig fails to keep a grip on them. Let, let's not beat about the bush. And is Haig be, going to beat about the wrong bush anyway? In fact, they should perhaps should have been going direct for uh, Schwab and Redoubt and, and Tiatvar Ridge. So this is so. In my view, this is not a great period of British generalship. Um, no, and there uh, were some noble successes. You know, a few German trenches and strong points are, are, are captured. Yeah, but what happens? They're replaced by new ones that that. Blossom just behind the German front so OG line. two, OG. So they just yeah. ju they just dig new ones, don't yeah, they? Yeah, it seems like there's no end in sight. And are, are they as good as the ones, the trenches that? Um, well, they, they won't be because they haven't had the time, uh, and and I shouldn't imagine that the British artillery leave them in peace to do this. No, that's true. Now, um, so so there's one quote that I remember that. Um, that really sums up how people were feeling. And it's a depressing quote, and we're going to finish on this one, aren't we? Uh, you've got a, a couple of comments to make at the end, but uh, uh, who am I going to be? You're going to be Captain Philip Pilditch of C Battery, 235 Brigade, Royal Field Artillery. I am afraid we are s settling down to siege warfare in earnest and of a most sanguinary kind. Very far from our hopes, our hopes in July. But it's always the same. Festiver... Loose, and now this. Both sides are too strong for a finish yet. God knows how long it will be at this rate. None of us will ever see its end, and children still at school will have to take over. Now, I thought that was brilliant. But it's yeah. also triggered a memory for you. Yeah, when we went to Verdun and, and, and I did a stand, I passed around a postcard. It was a French postcard. Uh, and we'll put this up, I think, because um, it, it showed babies and and it was the uh, the class of 37 i think and the inference was that the war was going to go on so long that there were children as yet unborn who would be necessary 
to fill the the depleted ranks. And uh, it, it, that just resonated with me with that last comment. And of course, uh, those children would be at war, but it would be the Second World War. It would. Now, uh, so this not a lot, of, not a lot of good cheer about uh, this week's episode. Uh, our, our, our loyal and loving listenership must be feeling quite depressed. Well, <laughs> most of them are, are, are that way after any of our podcasts, Pete. Oh yeah. Well, luckily we've uh, got our book coming out. Uh, well, we've been working on our book, uh, Laugh or Cry. <laughs> Which uh, and there's a couple of episodes uh, coming up which are based on recruitment training and uh, which uh, I hope uh, will cheer you up a bit. Anyway, Gary, I'm sorry that you've had your terrible accident this morning in the shower, and uh, I hope your shoulder gets better soon. Thanks, Pete. Cheers. Cheers. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?